Today's episode is brought to you by Merge Records, the label that over the last 25 years has been home to many great bands, including Superchunk, Arcade Fire, Spoon, and Neutral Mocotel. Merge recently released records by Bob Mould, M. Ward, Benji Hughes, Eric Bachman, Mount Mariah, and the Mountain Goats. And look for new albums from Little Scream and a Giant Dog in stores this month. Visit MergeRecords.com to learn about, listen to, and shop for music by these artists and more. Listeners to this podcast get 20% off any order using the coupon code BSPN at checkout. As always, domestic shipping is free. Again, go to MergeRecords.com and enter BSPN at checkout to get 20% off your first purchase. Merge Records, home of independent music since 1989. Go buy Here's Where the Strings Come In by Superjunk. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling sports and music tickets. Other sites have gone back to the same old tactic of showing you a lower price and then charging you huge fees at checkout. But at SeatGeek, the price you see is always the price you pay. With SeatGeek, there's no guesswork. You'll know exactly how much you're paying, where you're sitting, and whether or not you're getting a good deal, all right from your phone. So drop your old site and experience buying and selling tickets the way it should be. To start using SeatGeek, download the free SeatGeek app and go to SeatGeek.com. Also, before we get started, just want to tell you about our two new podcasts, The Ringer's NFL Show and The Ringer's NBA Show. They're all on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play Music. Just search for Ringer NFL, Ringer NBA. I'll be on that Ringer NBA. You know it. Talking sources say with Juliette Littman. Also, you guys, please watch After the Thrones. It's on uh, Sunday nights, basically really late Monday morning. It's hosted by me and Andy Greenwald, and it's available after every episode of Game of Thrones on HBO Now, Go, even HBO Proper, where it's on tonight, Monday night. Winter is here, and me and Andy are here to break it down. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRigger.com, and joining me on the other line, mixing vodka and emotions, it's Andy Greenwald! Whoa! Hey, buddy! What's up? Views from the six. Views from the six came out. You know, we're just uh, we're recording this on Monday, so it's only been a few hours since America saw both of us take the plaid and uh, <laughs> and air our second episode of After the Thrones. A lot going on. Yeah, you can catch After the Thrones now on HBO Now Go and HBO On Demand, and then you can watch us tonight, late night, uh, 10 p.m. Pacific, 1 a.m. Eastern. And if you are watching us, or if you are recording us on dvr add a little time add about 10 more minutes because we went over yeah we just bon- like we just the, <laughs> the last verse just went on and on you need that bonus content by the way can we on episode 10 of after the thrones can we do like um like kanye's last call where they just like run the theme music and we just yeah, like I'll- shout out everyone who's been a part of our journey thus far or just like a classic cannabis freestyle i think listen if we can end the show with a classic... We just start can- talking about how the moon landing wasn't real? Chris, let me be clear with you. If we end our show with a classic cannabis freestyle, we are definitely ending our show. I mean that in a very literal sense. Just just by choosing <laughs> to do that. That would be quite a way to go. Um, yeah, so we, we're going to talk about Drake, right? We're going to talk about... I got some airplane movies to unpack. I know yeah. people. I know that people are excited about that because hashtag it's a thing. But we got to talk about we got to talk a little bit more about Thrones, right? All of our like our big ticket. Can we, thoughts. Let's 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 repackage airplane movies to what we're really going to talk about. I think airplane movies is great, but we're also going to talk about the creeping television televisionification of movies and and the back and forth dialogue between the two mediums. Okay, but I think hashtag it's a thing is a far set. Like I just feel like as a branding, there's expert, like three people who have done that <laughs> as a branding expert. I just feel okay. like it's it's zippier. You know what I mean? Like, I think people wanted to know. I'm on a lot of planes these days. And so I'm seeing a lot of movies right. and I'm having some big cultural thoughts. 
And it's probably worth noting that any other cultural opinions I share in this podcast for the next eight weeks are probably a little Chardonnay soggy. From, from I'm trying to think of what the the Drake line about you taking lots of plans would be, <laughs> taking a flight like Denzel Washington in flight. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant be, that would definitely be like his his bars about it. But I thought you meant like yeah. like, the, the, like the creepy the creeping undertone of just sadness and self pity underneath it would be the Drake version of it. But <laughs> but that's how um, I fly. Oh, I've, listen, I was flying like Drake before Drake was flying like Drake. Um, <laughs> we should talk. Uh, can we talk a little bit about this Thrones? I mean, I know our big ticket thoughts are on the TV, but there's there's more. There's more out there, man. This is a big one. Yeah, I mean, I think that so there's like sort of the more meta conversation to have that we did we didn't talk about on After the Thrones, which is just the mechanics of having a character be quote unquote dead for an entire off season and one and seven eighths of a yeah. episode. And then kind of being like, psych? And, and the, you know, Allison Herman, who wrote something in our newsletter today uh, for The Ringer, mm-hmm. she made a really good point where she was just like, usually the big moments on Thrones are quite the opposite of what happened with Jon Snow. You know, it's like usually losing someone, not getting someone back. Well, that's what we I ta- thought that was a really good yeah. point. You know, and I think it was a very cathartic, you know, a very nice episode to watch in so much as there can be a nice episode of television in which a, a woman and a baby get eaten by dogs. Uh, but yeah, it's, it is an interesting, there is like a secondary storyline here about the way that Kit Harrington uh, was like out on these streets, just being like, I'm out. Side, side note. If I had pulled you aside just like five, just, just four short weeks ago. And I was like, Chris, and a prestige HBO Sunday night show is going to show is going to for the first time show explicit horse fucking. Like you would have thought it was Game of Thrones, right? Like at no point would you have been like, "Oh man, Silicon Valley's really kicking it up a notch." No, I would have been like, "Did you get the f- sex- sixth episode of Luck? Can I get it?" <laughs> oh, that's right. That's actually you actually just outdid my joke because the bigger joke is that it's really pick 'em when it comes to which prestige HBO show would have had, except ours, I guess. You know, at least our budget doesn't allow like full horse penetration yet, right? What do you think the reaction was at HBO when when Mike Judge was like, "So, exterior, we open on two horses," and they're like, "Wait, no, wait, just don't go any further." I just, I know. Or whose job was it? And we could ask because we know people now. The company, like, like, were you able to secure the services of the horse, the same horse you lit on fire in Belfast last year, and been like, 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 like look. Look, Mr. We, Ed, we call that, I, I know you had a rough go the last time, yeah. but can we make it right with you? Because we'd like to put you to stud on a popular comedy this season. Yeah. The bigger yeah. thing is, like, when Stephen Tobolowsky, like, got his notes for the season, like, how did they describe the character? <laughs> yeah. Like, or was that green screen? Or were they like, or, or did they just tell him, like, Stephen, like, you're in front of something astonishing, like something beautiful? <laughs> And majestic, and he's like, "Oh, like like the wall on Game of Thrones," and they're like, "Sure, definitely, Stephen. That's what it is." I um, couldn't help but think about his uh, his Groundhog Day character when I was watching that scene in Silicon Valley last night. If you haven't seen it, this this exchange is probably grotesque and and probably sexually troubling to you. But <laughs> in last night's Silicon Valley, Stephen Tobolowski's character, while talking with another character on on the show. They they watch two horses mate. I, I think it's worth noting that I, I, I realize now the error of my ways. People probably maybe thought I was being metaphorical when, in fact, it was explicit <laughs> equine intercourse, like on on the TV. 
And so soon to Kentucky Derby Day. Well, right. But like, you know, you just think about the theatrical tradition of horse love, you know, and you think about great plays like Equus and War Horse. And, and these plays have really always sort of been more figurative, right? Like they've sort of built a, a paper or wooden horse and let the let the mind do what it wants to do. This you know, the, we live in a different era now. That's all I'm saying. No, there wasn't a lot of suspension and disbelief. You, this is definitely the weirdest thing we've ever talked about. For oh, five oh, buckle up. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. So let's all the way back to, what, to to Allison's point, which I agree with, and I think you and I were both a little bit uh, thrown by this too, which is that this episode, this um, second episode of season six, Home, is essentially um, a heroic episode, which is very much not in keeping, as she said, with the, with the show. I mean, o- other than the the Ramsey stuff which, you know, in, in many ways was almost there as a counterweight to everything else. It, it was a lot of uplifting scenes. And to end on a note like that suggested, we, I, we talked about this on the show, but like, are we being lulled into a sense of comfort before the real hammer drops? Or has the show turned a corner and having knocked everything down, it's now about to start building things up again? Yeah, I think that the thing about that cliffhanger, because it, it is sort of more of a cliffhanger than I think we're really allowing it to be, because... You know, he took that breath, but we don't really know what's going to happen next with him. Um, there's really there, we're we're in somewhat uncharted territory. Obviously, on, on After the Thrones, we talk a lot about the resurrection of Beric Dondarrion in this third season. But let me, I guess let's let's put, look at it this way. Do you think that they could have played? Was there a way in which this could have been played differently that would have built up suspense? Right. Do you think that this was treated as as if it was like a miracle? Because that's what Davos calls it. But outside of the, sh- the world of the show, is this a miracle or is this something that was a little bit could have been drawn out a little bit more? Well, that, I think that's I think that's the question a lot of people have today. I, I you know, and I said this on the show, but I, I think that I was surprised by how much I was okay with him staying dead. Like I, not permanently, but for a few more weeks, because I really liked the way the spotlight was then shared among the other characters up in Castle Black, and and we just had Tormund arrive, and and you know there was an, an almost surprising bit of um, kindness demonstrated by the show um, this week, because there were so many characters spread out over the world map referring to John and Sansa's going to see him, and everyone knows where he is and talking about him up there. And I, you know, it would be very much within keeping in the keeping of the character of the show for them all at that moment to receive a raven, you know, just being like, newsflash, yeah, right. your boy's dead. So they sort of, so a lot of characters didn't experience that tragic arc. But here's the thing, you have to think about it. The show is very much not being made in a vacuum. And I think that given the real world um, demands placed on this production and the real world scrutiny placed on this show two episodes or as you put it one and seven eighths is about as far as you could stretch this thing and i and i've been finding that reaction fascinating because i'm i'm fine with the storytelling of it um because you know it seems quite clear that Jon snow's story within this television show is one of death and rebirth that this had to happen for the next thing to happen um but you know, we are very much in a world where the TV show part of it, and we're part of it, we perpetuate this by having a TV show to talk about it and a podcast. The TV show is one hour of the week, but the phenomenon stretches, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. They just simply couldn't keep up a ruse. And I, and I, and I said, and, and, you know, we said this on The Watch a few weeks ago, or actually now it was a few months ago when the first promotional images came out, that I thought having that first poster be a picture of Jon Snow was a about as classy as you can get in terms of winking but not winking being like we know you're waiting we all know this is coming 
but we're letting the story play out. You know, I, I don't know how else there is to do it in this world because you can't live in a world where you, you it, it's, it's hard to imagine a version of fandom where you want 24 hour access to the imagination and to the characters and to the actors and the creators, and then be upset when you sort of see the, the way that the strings are being pulled behind the scenes, you know? If, if I don't, you, I don't you, think that it was as, you know, it, I, I, it, I understand if some people were just like, I went through this traumatic loss of a, of a character and it, I found out that it wasn't, that that wasn't real. But I, I don't think that there was as much of a bait and switch here. And I mean, I guess it sounds like I'm carrying water, but I, I don't think there was as much of a bait and switch here because they never did anything with the body. I mean, they, they washed it and they gave him a haircut, but uh, they kept that body around. They didn't bury him. The, he didn't, you know, the he didn't leave the show. He, he never ever. went away. And I think that there was something almost earned in terms of storytelling by keeping him present on the show. Uh, if if he had gone away and then shown up at the end like Dr. Doug Ross or something, <laughs> I think that that would have been a little bit more chintzy and you would have probably been like, oh, this is, you can kind of see the the contracts being ripped up and re-signed here. But this was this was a storytelling device. And this was about pushing the boundaries of what is possible in this world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to see, I mean, we're obviously very involved with this season and thinking about it a lot. And you and I are talking about it a lot on and off camera and on and off microphone. But I'm very curious, and, and we'll talk to Jason and uh, Jason Concepcion and Mallory Rubin about this um, on a podcast soon. But I'm curious the if the book readers share the feeling of momentum that I think you and I are feeling and that other people, other fans of the show might be feeling. Like, is this... Is there a new sense of momentum because we're finally turning the corner or we're finally, quote unquote, off book? Or is it just where we are in the story that that sort of feeling is inevitable? You know, like I, I, I get from, you know, I've, it's been made clear to me from people and from fans that that uh, some characters who have been viciously stabbed to death by close family members over the last two weeks are still living in the books. And so but I'm curious, one thing that has been made clear to me is, is there fate? Does their fate feel like where it was headed in the books, you know, or are these, ba or is this basically the TV show asserting itself and clearing the decks for, you know, this end game of, the, of how many seasons of which we don't know specifically, but we could imagine, it, you know, there's at least one more that it's been renewed for and, and potentially one after that. Um, I was kind of curious about how you felt because I've been, I've been, I'm, when I watched these episodes on Sunday nights, I think I know, I noticed more than on my first viewing about how um, how these first two episodes have had so much work to do in terms of story that we haven't had a scene where a character like leaves the room that they're in. Right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Davos being in two rooms at Castle Black where he was first, he's in the room where John is, and then he goes and sees Melisandre, and then he goes back to... The, the amount of action that happened at Castle Black this week was the most sustained animation and action that we've had in an episode so mm -hmm. far which is i know it's a small sample size but it, it as, as just another conversation topic with the show the storytelling that they have to pull off right now and the way that they have to structure these episodes because we were talking a little bit before about um the idea of doing bottle episodes or having something like blackwater or hard home that mm -hmm. has huge set pieces which i know are very hard to pull off and expensive and everything like that but give that you're talking about momentum that we're feeling and i do feel that momentum and i i almost wonder whether we're not even ready for the momentum we're really going to feel once this show gets into like third or fourth gear 
No, I, I, it, it, it's true. I mean, I, I, one thing that we've talked about a bunch is the unprecedented scope, and it's it's interesting. I, I think that we've mostly had been lulled into a sense of expansion. You know, I, I, I probably chafed against it at some points in my recap. I know I did in my recaps over the last few years that, you know, everyone wants Daenerys to, like, start moving west, and she keeps going further east, or she gets bogged down in this quagmire but basically we've come to expect this from game of thrones so there's going to be dramatic changes and shifts and and reversals and reveals but the breadth of the show essentially stays unchanged right but the fact that it it actually does See, i don't know feel if i would have like felt that way about daenerys and that idea that there there is an end game going mm-hmm. on if we if if there wasn't this if if we were if you weren't writing a recap about game of thrones would you necessarily have this sort of ticking clock on when is this going to get to its its sort of no it will, fever pitch i think what you're getting at is a really good question which is if you're watching a normal tv show I mean, this yeah. is very much a not normal tv show characters go on journeys and stuff happens because the whole point of the show is to spread out and stay on for as long as you can until suddenly you you know until the bells rung basically um you know, I, I I don't watch The Good Wife, but people seem to have a lot of opinions about Alicia running for office. I was office just going to bring that up in season five. I was just going to bring that up season six, right? But I I think one of the reasons why people have become you know so attached to Game of Thrones is okay dragons. But one of the other reasons why they've become so enmeshed in it and, and were able to and fell in love with it so intensely um, is this feeling of one story is being told yes there are a million little stories but there is a bigger story here and we can trust it you know that's the it goes all the way back to the the things that people felt about the 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 resentment that some people in my mind ridiculously feel about lost where they were like i trusted you and you didn't pay it off my investment right but the reason people felt okay about not getting burned by when they went all in on game of thrones is they were like well there's a roadmap and there's a book and this is one story even though a lot of this might feel um uh digressive right but 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 yeah but, but but otherwise, you know, for 50 years of TV drama watching, yeah, it's just like, of, of course, um, Alicia has a side quest this season because what's her business going to be in season five otherwise? She has to have something well, to do. Well, even as, you know, The Good Wife sort of is winding down now. I'm, we don't really talk about it that much on this on this show. But, to, to be clear, uh, we never talk about it, except for, uh, you may, except you... for two seconds at the end when I shout into the microphone. <laughs> but... Uh, this has been, and I know that they did this series, this season, without some a total amount of clarity about whether it would be the final season, and that they wrote, they sort of wrote the finale of this season as if this would be the end because the kings who do the show were leaving, and there was a possibility they were going to do a sort of John Wells West Wing thing where someone else running the show. Yeah, um, but they didn't, and I, I wouldn't go so as far as to say it's anticlimactic as much as be, it, it's in. It's totally in hand with the rest of what The Good Wife is, which is so not what so many cable dramas are uh, in terms of the way that their plot works, that there's really not a whole lot at stake here. I mean, there's a degree to which whether or not Alicia stands by Peter through what will maybe be his worst defeat ever is, is in play. And if she does or doesn't, what that means for the rest of the show. But... Uh, there, it's not as it's not exactly like Russian nesting dolls. It's really more a group of people who have been on the air for seven years and have come to an ending point of sorts. It's I, I'm gonna you you mentioned one show I don't watch. I'm gonna I'm gonna one up you with the show you don't watch, which is The Americans, which is just sorry, it's just incredible this year. This is absolutely the best season of the show. Um, I've watched this week's coming this this week's episode and next week's, and it's just astonishing. But what I wanted to say about it was. 
as I've been watching this season unfold, I've been feeling the sort of two poles of TV drama watching, the old traditional one and the modern one in conflict. Because the traditional mode of TV drama watching was the illusion of change with the reassur- with the assurance of um, yeah. stability. Yes. You, right. In the same way we watched Cheers because we wanted to hang out with our friends and everyone knew each other's names, like dramas, like, you know, I don't know what I, I, I'm, I'm reaching here, but like L.A. Law or St. Elsewhere, like things fr- happen. Friends is a, yeah, Friends is even a good example because it's like the will there or won't they, but with the actual f- bedrock of these six will never change. And, and the reason why shows like, I mentioned L.A. Law, but if you think about ER, the star of the show is the hospital, so the characters change, mm-hmm. but the, the, the rhythms of it and, you know, the, the uplift when people were cured, that was always the same. And so when yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, I actually read a really interesting interview with the Kings in, in the Times this weekend. The Kings who make the good they were wife. talking up Yes, the Michelle and Robert not, King. Not the five kings of Westeros ab- who went to war. <laughs> no. I was really re- reading a great interview with the Drowned God in uh, Ironborn <laughs> Weekly. And he, he was that would like, be an uh, omni, I think, but please go I ahead. will cut off your tongue. No, I was reading, and so they were talking about um, why networks always love hospital shows is because there's you can always end an episode with blood on the floor. Right. And how tough that is for any, if you, if, for any other show is like if you kill someone, uh, that doesn't happen a lot, you know, in real, in real life. Yeah, no, the co- so cops, it's, it's difficult to work that in. Yeah, it's cops and doctors. And it, the, you can have the stakes are so much higher. And, and so when I'm watching the Americans this year, it's playing out for me because the show is pretty aggressively moving things forward, you know, not necessarily towards the, the finale because there's going to be at least one more season, or at least that's what the showrunners told me um, when I had them on the podcast. There's definitely going to be a fifth season. There might even be a sixth and final season. It's unclear. But... Um, they are moving things forward and I'm f- starting to realize that as much as I'm eager and excited to see how they play out these things because the show is just excruciatingly tense and always has been I miss the status quo you know I, I start to f- have a feeling of regret that I'm not spending time with these characters in these familiar places anymore which is an interesting way to, to be interacting with a show in this modern era when the whole point of it often seems to be Let's just get to the end. Let's tell one story and move it, move it, move it along, right? I mean, we, we've spent we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the 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 value of miniseries because that's what or limited series or event series. And this is also this came up so much with Saul, right? Exactly, exactly, and that's and here I am maybe contradicting myself because that show certainly dug its heels into a very specific place this season, and I found it a little frustrating. I, I think potentially because that place still feels like so many steps behind and i mean that in all senses um i think there's also the a world degree that we, to which we perceive it as that show having trying to have its cake and eat it too with mm-hmm. the mike yeah. b plot um and that it's just so intoxicating to watch mike and know where that is going and know who he is about to be associated with whereas the saul the, the jimmy saul stuff while having its its good parts anyway is just much more, it just seems much more obtuse, or not obtuse, it seems so distant from something. It seems so distant from its endpoint, which is weird that I would be like on a season second, a second season of a show, be like demanding to know where well, you're going. Well, I also just don't know, and I'm sure that this is a conversation that, that um, Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould had, and they had with, with Joel Stillerman at AMC and others involved in the show. Like, is someone becoming Saul Goodman that interesting? And, and I'm not saying it's not. I just don't always know if it is. And I think they're certainly aware of that. And that's why they're doing their best to, 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 to ground it in real emotional stakes with, with Kim, which is a character who I, who I think is a total success. And then with his brother, Chuck, a character that I think I, I, I could 
sort of take or leave. Like I think the the way the way that the pieces fit together in the season two finale were just very telegraphed and ultimately not that meaningful. I didn't. I, I they were they were designed to give you the same like emotional wallop. Like oh wow, look how look how twisted this has become. Look how look how he's got him over the barrel. Look what look what this is pointing towards. It had the same sort of ticking clock mechanism that worked on Breaking Bad, but the stakes were just so, so, so much lower that I, I found it disappointing. But yeah. so, so, we're, so we're, we're having a broad conversation about TV, and I think we should probably note that um, unclear if it's, we're going to be able to do to travel schedules and stuff started up this week or next week, but we are going to start doing some forward-looking Game of Thrones re-ups. Right, so so yeah. we will keep yeah, talking yeah. about Yeah, we'll Game do some preview stuff going forward. It's just today is is not the day for that. Andy, but, let's take a quick break and come back, and then we can talk a little bit about airplane. I think movies. We should talk about movies next. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag it's a thing. We'll be right back. Just want to take a second to talk a little bit about one of our sponsors, DraftKings. Experience the thrill of one week fantasy golf every week at DraftKings.com. Amazing prizes are up for grab each time you play. And playing is easy. Just pick six golfers before a tournament tees off, stay under the salary cap, and rack up points based on how the players perform. You outscore the competition, you win. Whether you're a total golf enthusiast or you just love the thrill of fantasy sports, DraftKings brings the excitement of a game to a whole new level. With every monster drive and every made putt bringing you closer to payday, you can choose from all kinds of sports, by the way. Showcase your winning skills. Baseball, soccer, MMA, millions of sports fans just like you have discovered the magic of DraftKings. Now it's your turn. Use promo code BSPN at DraftKings.com and play for free with your first deposit in a fantasy golf contest with 400000 in prizes. The top prize is 100000 so you can seriously cash in there. That's code BSPN to play for free and a shot at the 100000 top prize. Only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. So as uh, longtime listeners, I'm sure know, uh, Andy does not get to the theater as much as he would like to. I mean, the movie theater as much as he would like to. But in the advent of doing this after the throne show has just been inundated with some some recent classics. Yeah. Uh, By the I way, think, you know, we thank you for carrying the water on this bit. I know I know you're you're fighting against it, but I really appreciate it. And and also I would like to say for people who are curious, I get to the actual theater just enough. You know, I I, I in case people were confused, like not the movie theater, but like the Great White Way, I'm good. I'm fine. Okay. Good, please, but please, um, yeah, go on. No, but Andy, we just use this as a jumping off point to talk a little bit about the movies. Yeah, I don't um, really feel like we... There actually to... isn't a ton in the theaters right now. I mean, I've talked a lot about Green Room, and I didn't get a chance to see Keanu yet, but... And we don't need looks, to... Looking forward to Louder Than Bombs. We, yeah, I'd like to see that. You don't... People don't necessarily need to know how, my, how I felt about The Night Before, or Sisters, or some of the other great choices I've made on recent cross-country jaunts. Um you know, I, I could go on about how ultimately I just keep wanting to watch Hannah and her sisters. And, you know, I did again. And it might be his best film. Really a masterpiece. Nice to see the three-eyed, three-eyed raven, you know, on, uh, on, uh, on two legs, not in a tree, and um, feuding domestically with Barbara Hershey. But on a separate point, so this trip, well, on the way out, I watched, uh, I watched Black Mass, which is the uh, Whitey Bulger biopic that Johnny Depp was in, and it seemed like a real like prestige ocean liner, right? Like the cast. If if you are a strong jawed white dude in between thirty five and forty five, and you weren't cast in this movie, then you probably should get a new agent because the cast list yeah, for this it was, was Kevin Bacon, Joel Edgerton, uh, Cumberbatch, Adam Scott, the boy J- uh, Jesse Plemons. Um, really, and then it was 
written by Jez Butterworth, who wrote Jerusalem, which is like this huge play in England, which did a lot to sort of popularize Mark Rylance to the larger yeah, world. Butterworth's taken and, up in uh, Hollywood. He did Spectre, too. Also, yeah, he wrote uh, Skyfall? What did he write? Inspector. Yeah. Because I watched job. some of Spectre on this recent flight, and woof. Yowza. Anyway, the thing about Black Mass <laughs> that was interesting. My favorite thing about Andy's airplane movies is that the initial take is so Rex Reed. It's Oof. like, hey, now, <laughs> I do not know about that one. Well, it's, it, I got to say, there is something to watching these movies just completely devoid of context, like a year later. And just, you know, there, there's an element. The reason, I, the reason all of us love going to the movie theater is because it's it's an experience and there's a spectacle and seeing things you know when you're when you're having some nice popcorn maybe you're reclining a little bit if you're in my neighborhood you're just feeling like the rhythmic nibble of bed bugs on your back um <laughs> no but like the big the big screen like seeing a movie is a fun experience for the most part and it can excuse a lot of things like a, you know maybe a, some clunkers in the script or whatever but if you're at you know 30,000 feet or whatever that it's maybe not as forgiving so anyway so i watch black mass this is what i want to say and it's really, really bad because it cannot decide what it wants to be in a fascinating way. Like all the pieces are there for this to be good. Um, and not even even in a world in which Boston, the movie on Funny or Die exists. Right. Like there's still a way for this to be something like when the movie begins, it begins with a close up of Jesse Plemons. And it seems to be like, oh, so this movie is going to be like Goodfellas with Jesse Plemons as the Ray Liotta character coming up with the Whitey Bulger gang and then finding out about the betrayal with the feds. And then it immediately forgets about him and we don't see him again until the end. And then we meet Johnny Depp playing Willy Wonka, playing a gangster. And it's a very bizarre choice, of course, because he likes doing bizarre choices. But he's do- this was his movie where he was like, despite wearing you know, ghostly makeup and weird blue contacts, he was acting in this one. He wasn't performing, a, you know, like he wasn't doing a Michael Jackson impression. And he's very charismatic and he's very compelling. But this was the wrong movie. The thing about the movie and the thing that that clearly maybe Butterworth or the other credited screenwriters or someone at some point in this was like looked at the Whitey Bulger thing and was like, well, we already made The Departed exists. What is the story here? And the story here is not just that Whitey Bulger, Boston crime lord, was an FBI informant. The story is that the guy who was tasked with investigating him in the FBI grew up in Southie, uh, worshipped the Bulger brothers and basically made him an informant to protect him and take down the Italian mob. So it's this really interesting story about um, misplaced affection and and um, uh, loyalty and neighborhoods, and that's the Joel Edgerton part. And my feeling is, and I hope someone who knows can call in and tell me this, someone wrote a script about the Joel Edgerton character in relation to the Bulger brothers, but to get the movie made, they offered it to Johnny Depp, and he was like, great, the movie's about me now. And so they made this weird, lumpy biopic that's also supposed to be a psychological drama. They made 100 movies, and none of them are good. And that's my review. But what I wanted to ask you, because you go to all the theaters all the time. You love experimental black box theater. You love movie theaters. Don't love bed bugs, which is why you moved away from Brooklyn. We talked, and I apologize for the monologue, but we've talked many times about how TV thinking has invaded the, mo- the multiplex, especially in relation to blockbusters and shared universes and how the Marvel movies are essentially each year. There's just a new season of the Marvel movie TV show and, you know, movie uh, there's a great piece in New York Magazine about how the Russo brothers, TV directors, are the perfect people to be directing these movies. They can manage budgets and keep things moving on time. All of that. I, watching this movie made me wonder which, if there's a... Uh, our boy Jim Mickle, who does Happen Leonard and has directed a couple of really good small independent films, said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, Hollywood deserves to be kicked in the dick for this one. For, 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 for Black Mass? 
No, for the like the Russo brothers are like the platonic ideal of Hollywood directors. Well, like if this is what you want, that's pretty interesting. And I think that, but th- but I feel like that sort of stuff is getting all the the ink and the spotlight. Like that's how movies are becoming TV. But I watch Black Mass, and and I, I and I'm gonna I'm gonna take my answer off there. I'm gonna step back. I promise. But I feel like you're better equipped to say this. Like movies, this is like to... watching Joe Johnson dribble for five minutes, listening <laughs> you do this. I'm walking away. I promise. I'm leaving the arena. That's Mo- what Joe Johnson says every night. <laughs> and that's why he's a proven winner. Um, <laughs> movies have to be about a specific moment. You pick your story, beginning, middle, end, and you get out of there, and you do the best you can. It's the opposite of TV, which can spread out the story. Black Mass felt like they were worried about if they were telling the right story. A star was involved. So they decided, we'll just tell all the stories. And they tried to cram five seasons of a TV show about the Boston mob into a two-hour movie, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I wonder if you're seeing that sort of, it has to be everything all the time thinking in movies separate and apart from summer blockbusters. I'm done. I'm done. Hmm. I'm dropping this mic. I'm going to take a... I'm going to take a lap around the block on this one. Yeah. And get warmed up. Yeah, stretch. I'm going to do so by st- starting a little bit earlier in your point, which is just I want to pipe in and say um, Johnny Depp doesn't make good movies. So Johnny Depp has <laughs> yeah. made Ed Wood. That was pretty good. So good. I like Public Enemies, but he is not a very good part of it. I agree with and both some those people really like Lone Ranger. And I defy what? you. <laughs> Name to someone. F- what? Who likes Lone Sean Ranger? Fettacy. Sean Fantasy. Sean likes Sean Fantasy yeah. and Quentin Tarantino both like Lone Listen Ranger. Listen to me, Chris. When you when you Im- when you invoke the name of the troll, you have to say the name of the troll. It's like Beetlejuice. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't just be like, "There's a dude under the bridge who likes Lone Ranger." You have to say Sean's <laughs> this name. This guy Go by on. the 101. Um, other than that, he has not made a good film, and in fact, seems to excel at making utter piles of shit, <laughs> aka Transcendence, Mordecai. Uh, you know. Dark Shadows, basically anything with Tim Burton other than Ed Wood. I like the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but come on, Charlie and Chocolate Factory, get out of here. Well, uh, From Hell, I thought was okay, so was Blow, but that was like a weird run. What, what about uh, Sleepy Hollow, Astronaut's Wife, Ninth Gate was kind of whatever. Donnie Brasco, I know people like. Uh, yeah, Brasco's good. What about like What's Eating Gilbert Grape, like early stuff? Nope. No, you, you don't. You, you don't mess with Hard Benny pass. and June? Hard pass. You don't Hard feel pass. Benny and June? I liked uh, Fear and Loathing. I like I liked to miss that in that. Did you really, though, dog? Did you really like it? I or mean, did have, you just like the fact that it got made? Have I thought about it since I did this scroll through the Wikipedia page as you're talking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, that's a, that's a pretty good point. All right. Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll accept Is, it. And he also might... That... I mean, we, we people mock Adam Sandler. I would be interested to know whether or not... Uh, Johnny Depp has the highest like box office receipts to the lowest Rotten Tomatoes. Well, there's a, I mean, we could do, and maybe we will at this point, like there's definitely a Johnny Depp podcast to be done because to go from someone who had all the talent and, you know, had this like matinee looks to someone who basically wanted clearly like just wanted to hide and play dress up and be a weirdo i mean i would straight up kill tate right now if i could look like johnny depp his looks are not what's in question <laughs> i would get it i would shave that fucking d'artagnan but i would i would be happy to look like him he's got a great wig great hair set of hair set of hair great head of hair <laughs> that's like the basketball <laughs> ring you like to dunk on it you like to just run a comb through your good did you know that Johnny Depp is in London Fields? I was about to tell you that and see how you felt about it. 
how do you feel about it? It's, London Fields is your shit. London Fields by Martin Amos was a very important book for 21-year-old Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan. Um, they probably, you know, I feel about it like one feels about a lot of one's favorite books, which is they, they probably can't make a movie of it. So it's cute that they're trying, and I don't have very high hopes for it. But Okay, you have I know you have a hard out, so let me get back to your original question, which is about um, focusing movies and making them about this 90 to 130-minute sort of series of events and just really like telling a single story as well as possible. Yes, and I think that well obviously there are things like Lawrence of Arabia and all these there are the ways that films can just jump back and forth across time is, you know, a, a sort of singular experience you can have in a movie theater. But I do think that the more um that I read about especially modern filmmaking, and the Russos is a really good example and Marvel and everything like that. And it, I you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because the Captain America Civil War uh, mm-hmm. press has been so good and I am pretty resigned to the idea that I am going to go into Captain America Civil War much like I went into Winter Soldier which is expecting some sort of comic book version of all the president's men and coming out with a pretty good Marvel movie you know because Definitely. I think that more and more with the more com- corporations and venture capitalists and money that's involved with movies it's just kind of a miracle when a movie is good. And even when a movie gets made with the best of intentions, like, say, Midnight Special, which has got a lot going for it, and I really, really like Jeff Nichols, and I think he makes really cool movies, the, the ending of that movie is nonsensical. And I, you, you could say, oh, you don't get it, or the endings of movies don't matter, or something like that, but I think that the end of that movie is not good. You know, and Jeff Nichols has everything going for him as a filmmaker, and that movie had everything going for it as a story. And so I think that when you talk about something like Black Mass, which I know that there were competing Whitey Bulger right. uh, films in, in production or at least in, in, in development, you have to wonder about every single thing that went wrong along the way. And it was interesting to tie this into what we were talking about earlier. Listening to the Kings, Robert Michelle King and Juliana Margulies talk about how like there's basically no amount of money you could pay us. Well, this is Margulies who said it to do a 22 episode season of television. If you're a person who has like a pretty good idea for a story, aside from the thrill of seeing it on a big screen and the, just the participating in the cultural legacy of being having your movie distributed, it's increasingly hard for me to understand why you would want to put your story through that process. Yeah, because the chances are much higher that it will wind up getting compromised or whatever along the way than if somebody lets you make. You look at what like this um, this Richard Price miniseries that's coming out on HBO. It's like that couldn't be made into a movie. You know, they wouldn't let. Uh, it was the night before? No, um, it's the oh, Seth oh, Rogen night thing. night of the Steven Zalian thing. Night of which the I've night heard of. is yeah, people Steve... are telling me it's amazing. I'm excited to see. Yeah, because it. it's Steve Zalian and Richard Price finally get to do something where nobody's messing with it. Yeah, I mean, you've really hit on something, which is that in what, this is something that any, I think any any uh, piece of whatever that it seeks to cover the entertainment industry, there should always just be a little caveat, a little um, footnote, just be just to always say really loudly, it is an impossible, crazy miracle that anything good ever gets made. In any, in, mm-hmm. in, honestly, in any field, but I think you're especially right in 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 movies. Um, you know, it, where it's just there's there's just a thousand demands and a thousand cooks, and you're just really trying to steer away from disaster. Yeah. So Black Mass was directed by Scott Cooper, who you know got great reviews for a movie he made with Jeff Bridges called Crazy Heart. And I don't know him. I don't mean to cast any aspersions on his character or anything, but 
you you see people who make very well-regarded indie movies get tapped to do simpatico movies that they might bring some perspective to but they are hired specifically because they are pliable right because they can't they can't win in the end against the other forces of play whether it's johnny depp's agents or the studio and so their vision gets just you know they're they're basically there to be russo brothers even though they have something more to say they're there to be stewards of the brand yeah now we i know we got to move on to another topic but the flip side of that and if I could just bring it back to the airplane movies one more time, is that on another flight recently, I fired up two uh, Oscar contenders from the past year. And Carol! <laughs> I, t- I keep threatening Chris. Every time I sit down in my seat, I just tell him I'm going to do the Carol Brooklyn double feature and just blow his mind and shatter Dog, all the I saw records. both those movies and enjoy both of them. I th- I'm actually a Brooklyn ap- apologist. And I, you know, you can always talk Rooney Mara with me. You're a Carol stan? All right, I'll, I'll watch it. But listen, I'm not like I have, I thought like the movie had issues, but I was very into Rooney Mara's. The issue being that Kate Mara should have been in it. Um, I fired up two other Oscar contenders. This fucking podcast is over, and I made <laughs> it like full stop. <laughs> Chris, I made it ten minutes into both of these movies. Audibly said, "Get the fuck out of here," and turned it off. Um, well, see, this is why you need to well, go to the theater because sometimes you need to challenge yourself and not just right. drink Chardonnay and watch House Hunters. I think I had a gin and tonic that day, but look, it was uh, it was that was the Revenant and Joy, and I both of them I just thought were so ridiculous immediately and just phony nonsense. But the reason the phony nonsense thing about them was the strength of the directorial vision, right? So I, mm-hmm. I probably was premature because, you know, is Zinyaraju is, is, is just like letting the bullets whiz through the pelts, you know, up in, up in Canada. And Tom Hardy, is, I don't you know You had the what, surround sound on that flight? I that literally was... don't know what he <laughs> was doing in this one. Yeah. Like, I, was, I don't want to see this. This is, I don't want this. But he is, he's flexing because he's one of the few people allowed to flex. And so is David O. Russell being like, you know, oh, it's a magical camera spinning fable about little girls and mops. And I'm like, just come on, relax, everybody. Relax. Let Scott Cooper make his crime movie, Hollywood. That's my com- that's 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 my airplane comment. Airplane coming in for this landing. is. A, we we should keep talking about this. I like I like the, the, your your major idea about TV, the effect of TV on movies, how these things talk to each other. I also think it's just really fascinating to watch Carrie Fukunaga's career coming out of TV, or yes. at least getting that that TV boost. And he hasn't been able to really like you know obviously the Beast of No Nation was was a, a very powerful film, but off of it. You know, like I feel like he's had a lot of stuff that's almost been popping off and hasn't hasn't really rocked anything yet. And, and, and um, let's, let's mention that Beast of No Nation um, was made due to the largesse of TV because Netflix wanted yeah, to. Right. Out, Netflix was basically like, we need to, we want to start making movies, and the way we're going to get noticed is we're going to throw a lot of money at a attention-getting prestige project that you know, real talk, no one else is going to make, and and that's why it got made. Thanks, TV. Thanks, TV. You're the best. Um, you you want to talk about Drake? Do you want to climb the old the old CN Tower or whatever that tower is called and dangle your Tim's? You know off the that side of it? that image now has so much more resonance after listening to that record. So we're talking about views and just your boy on just sitting on the top of a tower all alone, high so, as can be, so alone, higher too- than his expectations. Um, yes. And now you look at that picture and it's like, oh, look at a lonely motherfucker on the top of a building. <laughs> this um. This didn't go the way he thought it was going to go, I don't think. This album is not uh, being well-received. No. I don't think that this record was, first of all, built for event listening. No. Um, it didn't come with a movie. It didn't come with a Madison Square Garden collective uh, celebration that Pablo did. 
Uh, it doesn't have the force of will that Butterfly did. It not that you could only be one of those records. In fact, that's what this record really is. Is it's a throwback to like these twenty song expansive skits. I don't know, man, but it's it, to to be like putting so much. This record is, you know, if people have been following Drake's career, Views has had a lot of weight on it, man. Like he's been talking about Views for a few years now. He put out "What a Time to Be Alive," and if you're reading this, it's too late as sort of stop gaps. And now you're just like, did you? First of all, no shots, but shots. There's definitely been a brain drain in Drake's ghostwriting camp. Yeah, the, yeah. So I, this one has some effing clunkers on it, and the, it also feels very like improvisatory or like he's just making it up as he's going along. For as sculpted and beautiful as the beats feel, to have so many things where so like somebody could just tap him on the shoulder and been like, "Hey, man." That line sucked. Yeah, like, like Try no, again. no one, no one calls you chaining. No Tatum. one did that. Yeah, no one calls like you chaining was... Tatum, my G. No, one, <laughs> no, no one, no one does that. Um, no no one I, calls you that. To, 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 to offer a a slight counterpoint, you are correct that this album was not made for the event era, um, though it had all which the is ex- I guess we're in that right. We're in the event yes, era, and it, it, it was got it, Radiohead it, out here erasing the internet. Part of the event era. And and we're going to do a Radiohead pod soon, and I'm excited for it. But um, it was not made for the event era. However, I would argue that it was made precisely for draining the fourth glass of Shard while flying over Omaha. Because I had a moment with this album flying home the other day. It is there is something remarkable about the 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 weirdly shiny like thousand thread count sonic precision and beauty of the music here that that 40 his his dude has made and there are times listening to this record which is way too long absolutely but where you suddenly you can you can sort of chemically bring yourself to the point that maybe they were trying to communicate and it's so specific it's like oh i i I, we're in we're in sync now and i get it and there are the moments when particularly when he engages with with dance hall and Caribbean music, which he's, you know, did work really well for him on hotline bling and moments on like the Rihanna song too good. And, um, definitely, um, the single one dance, which is low key amazing, um, and controller. And it's like, he's, he's communicating something here that is pretty, pretty unique and pretty special, just musically, purely musically in terms of rhythm and melody. And it's really intoxicating, but yeah, 40 is 40 is, well, but, but Drake is able to, to, to yeah, I, I give it. Drake can have all the authorship he wants over the musical contours of this record, but this record definitely, definitely suffers from Father Stretch My Hands disease. M- meaning you, you don't you only want to listen to Father Stretch My Hands? No, meaning it's got like incredible like these moments of musical beauty oh. that are followed up with now I fuck this model like type lyrics, but not even, but not even imbued with the sense of humor or self like self parody no. that sometimes he- I think Kanye has. Drake, I would love to think that there is some self-parody in here, but... There is not. He's he's getting weirdly humorless as he disappears up his own ass completely up in the top of a tower all by himself. And I think Ryan Domble mentioned this in his Pitchfork review where he was talking yeah, about, was like, Drake's no new, his no new friends attitude has sort of, like, isolated him. And I think that that's true because, you know, people have talked about how this is just such, like, a... It's it's got this. It's obviously about his relationships to women and his inability to sustain things. But I actually think there's a lot of stuff in here about his inability to have like meaningful 
male friendships. Well, he, he you know, there's he, a he, lot of stuff in here where he's just like, I did this all by myself, and like this push pull between wanting to rep Toronto and you know, keep it with his friends and just be like, but then there's a lot of like, but then you fucking ask me for money or like, you don't, you didn't do this. I did this. Or like now you, you need to take a pill to feel he, something. He, he also X'd out. He also X'd out Jay and Kanye from the record in a weird way. Cause they yeah. were on pop style. Well, I would too. Those guys sounded like they had flip flops on while they were recording that beat. That, Jay, that verse. Jay, Jay didn't take his coat off. Shouts to that Simpsons yeah. gift. The funniest thing on the internet all year. Um, look there, there's, um, I, I, after I listened to this, uh, you know, three or four times, I put on "Take Care," and that album, which I loved at the time, is even better than I remembered. It's just amazing, yeah, and that's, that's not the Chardonnay idea. talking. And but but the thing I wanted to say about "Take Care" is it is such a quintessentially twenty-one-year-old person's album in the most exciting way because it is the sound of someone like feeling their limits when they still feel limitless and discover. And there's a joy of discovery and acceptance in it that is really, really special. And it's kind of universal, right? Because like one of the best songs on there is Underground Kings. And maybe that's my favorite Drake song, period. And it's intentionally named after UGK. And there's a whole part on that track where he talks about he and his, him and his friends discovering Lil Wayne mixtapes and just going crazy to them. And it's yeah. not about going on tour with Lil Wayne or being co-signed by Lil Wayne or being more successful than Lil Wayne, like his records probably, you know, subtext are now. It's about being like, oh, my God, this I'm from I'm here in Toronto. I'm on top of this, not even on top of this building yet. I'm in Toronto, which is not known, you know, no shots to chaos or Cardinal official is not known as the hotbed of this stuff. And I am I felt I can be made to feel alive through music from the South, which I can't even imagine. It's like a foreign planet. And you and I have talked. We talked about this on the 96 pod. Like, that's how we engage with hip hop, too, in a lot of ways. And that's how we engage with a lot of music at that age when you are most excited to engage with music. And that was there was an openness to that feeling that allowed his kind of, you know, um, hermetic emotional state to at least recede from recede from view a little bit that was there but it was also about being excited by things and i guess whether whether it's fame or his own issues with women which are no joke serious as evidence on this record um that there's no more there's still discovery but it's as you as you correctly said it's all in the music that's being brought to him to 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 to, to drape his chaining tatum over we can wrap this up but i want to say that i i'm very interested to see what drake does next because he has sort of mastered the modern content pipeline whether Mm -hmm. it's showing up at the right shit and being funny while he's doing it like the stuff this weekend with him at the raptors game was actually semi-tragic to me where he was there was one play where like i think kyle lowry scored in game seven against the pacers and drake like got up and started clapping and getting hype which obviously if he's a big raptors fan but it was like he definitely like made it so that he couldn't sit back down and as he was freaking (laughs) out and and happy for kyle lowry Paul George came down and drilled a three and Drake was just kind of like standing there while everybody was like, damn, Paul George is a killer. (laughs) And it was sort of very like emblematic of this week where it was like, you should be really happy, but then you get caught out there kind of. And he's put out this very confessional record. And I think people are sort of, you know, to some extent rejecting it. Drake is very good at course correction and he's very good at giving people a variety of stuff to, 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 to chew over. To chew on, and I would be very curious to see how long it takes before he puts out something. I mean, I know he talked a little bit about this mythical Kanye mixtape, but something. Well, I wonder what Drake's if J- Drake comes back with some HYFR stuff it, pretty it, soon. It's pretty telling that Hotline Bling is on this record as track twenty bonus track because they looked at someone looked at this, and because he's he's a very smart dude, someone was like, "You need a hit song on this record." 
like you need even if it's you know your biggest hit ever from a few months ago because clearly the intention was for that not to be here um and the other thing about it that i'm interested in is as we've tracked the you you know the event the event era for albums but also the basically the kind of when we were talking about sign of the times and prince the other week we were talking about like how everyone in a very raucous era was waiting for the album like oh what's prince's next album with this next artist the, the next artist up is going to have to wow us with something like after the bends we were like radiohead better deliver with okay computer because that's their next statement and we are now way out of that era in a place where you know artists like drake can just own a year without ever releasing an official album and he can make one album that is specifically this these kinds of rap songs like if you're if you're reading this or collaboration with with future both of which are, you know in many ways are going to end up being more popular than views whereas an album of the best tracks of all three in a different era might have been one of the greatest albums of all time um it's been, or, or, and we've also talked about it in relation to Kendrick Lamar, right? Who will jump on a Taylor Swift single or an ASAP Rocky song, but be resolutely anti-commercial with his own music. And the album is the place where he retreats to do what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. It's it's weird to see Drake basically still subscribe to this very raucous sensibility that, like, he'll jump on other people's tracks and you know and, and dance with Rihanna in the video. But when it comes time to craft his masterpiece, he has to go in his lab, which is located on the you know fiftieth floor of this tower or whatever. And he has to create something that is challenging and personal. But you can just disappear up there. I mean, it's almost like the prog rock understanding of an album at this point, right? Like, this is an an artist who is nimble and fun being like, oh, no, 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 you know, smiles off now because this is my album. And that is kind of not, uh, that's not really a way I like to enjoy music, even though I am enjoying this record. Uh, Okay, well, that sounds like a good place to any to stop. We will be back next week. You can subscribe to the Watch Through the Channel 33 podcast feed. Uh, and Andy, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, and we'll be back with a uh, podcast next week, of course. Maybe a re-up this week. Definitely a re-up next week. And After the Thrones, Episode 3 will be live on all HBO platforms uh, beginning midnight Pacific, Sunday night, Monday morning. And mm-hmm. that's always that's fun. Right. And I'd like to say, on behalf of myself, Chris Ryan, the Kings, and the Queen Juliana Margulies, great job, Baranski! Peace! This episode of The Watch is brought to you by DraftKings.com, where amazing prizes are up for grabs whenever you play one-week fantasy golf. Just pick six golfers before a tournament tees off, stay under the salary cap, and rack up points based on how your players perform. Outscore the competition to win your share of $400,000. Play free with your first deposit with promo code BSPN only at DraftKings.com.